Luke chapter 14, today we're going to be considering together verses 15 to 24. Okay? Controversy and opposition have been growing steadily around Jesus, especially as he has set his face on Jerusalem, where he will complete the work that God has given him to do. And there are two specific um, different times when we especially see controversy around Jesus and, and opposition against him. And those two times are the Sabbath day and meal times. On Sabbath days, the religious establishment opposed Jesus whenever they saw him, to put it simply, make someone better. Because they had rules against that kind of thing on the Sabbath day. And it just sounds absurd when you say it. They, but they, of course, had no realization of that. But at mealtimes also, there was a lot of controversy around Jesus because of who he included. And not only that, but how he ate and how his followers ate, not abiding by the tradition of, you know, all of the washings that they prescribed and things like that. The legalists had rules about those things too. And so, on the Sabbath days and at mealtimes especially, we see controversy around Jesus. Now in Luke chapter 14, we are finding the last Sabbath opposition against him and the last mealtime controversy. And we're seeing them happen at the same time. Let's uh, recap what we went over last week. On this particular occasion... There is no controversy about who is included at the meal because Jesus has actually been invited to the household of a prominent Pharisee. And it's a Sabbath day banquet that is being held there. And we know that the Pharisees were there and had invited Jesus, included him just simply to watch him, to expose him. They were hunting him down, wanting to to bring down his ministry. And there was a man present, likely a man who had been planted there, who had dropsy, better known today as edema. His, uh, he had this excess fluid retention, which meant that his limbs were swollen, his belly was obviously swollen, and um, the Pharisees were watching what Jesus would do with this individual. And so Jesus turned to them, and he asked them, knowing their thoughts, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And he took the man to himself, healed him, and then sent him on. And then Jesus turned the tables on the Pharisees. They had been watching him, but he also had been observing them. He had seen their their vanity and their jockeying for position, their self-exaltation. So he commanded them about being humble. He knew that when they hosted a meal, they would only do so, they would only serve people for repayment. And so he told them, humble yourselves and honor the poor. And look to God for his reward. And that was basically what we covered last week, although we obviously took a lot longer to do it last Sunday. Um, now Luke's coverage of this Sabbath day meal is not quite done yet, because as we're going to see in a moment, one of the guests at the meal, picking up on what Jesus has been teaching, has something to say. So let's take up our reading in verse 15. We'll read through verse 24, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. 
When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, we have done what, uh, we, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Again, there is, there's a certain guest here who has heard what Jesus has been teaching, all that we covered last Sunday. And, and picking up on what Jesus says, he responds, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now this is a good statement as it stands alone, right? It's true and it's good, but it's not a standalone statement. And and we need always to deal with the context of what is being spoken. And we can tell, I mean, look at the first word after he says what he does in verse 16. It says, but, but he said to him, in other words, Jesus is not necessarily receiving what this man says favorably. Or maybe we should say the heart with which he says it. Jesus knows this individual. Likely he is one of the religious establishment, one of the Pharisees invited to this gathering who is watching Jesus. So by Christ's response to this man, I think that we can quite safely conclude that this man thinks this banquet is quite the thing. So much quite the thing that he sees it as a good representation of that banquet to come, what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb in the coming kingdom. And... I think we can also quite safely say that he believes that his his peers, fellow Pharisees, are a good representation of the guests who will be present there in the future banquet. And so Jesus responds, not so fast. Not so fast. Jesus gives a reply in the form of a story, and this is what it amounts to. He is basically saying to this man, the ones that you think will be there won't be. And the ones that you believe won't be there will be. Those that the Pharisees would exclude, God includes. And those whom the Pharisees assume will be included, God will turn away. And that's what the message of of Jesus' story is. 
And the question that we all need to deal with is that Jesus is asking each and every one of us is, will you be? Will you be there? Will you be included? Are you assured? Are you confident that you will be there? You know, today you may be confident. Today you might feel assured. Today you might not be giving it a whole lot of thought. But I'll tell you, there is going to come a day if God gives you the space for reflection when you know that your life is coming to an end where you will consider this question very carefully. And on that day, in your last days, will you have that assurance? Will you have the same confidence then as you do today? And if you believe that you will be there, why? What are the reasons? What is the basis for your confidence? It all depends. Your presence there in the future kingdom and at the banquet of the Lord, it all depends on how you see Jesus and how you see yourself. How you see Christ and how you see yourself. If at His call you come to Him, believing that He is worth coming to, believing in your heart that He is actually worth counting everything else as loss for, to to gain Him, you will be there in the kingdom of God. But there's also this sense, you know, not only what must we see Jesus as worth it all, but we must understand ourselves rightly. You see, the Christian is someone who says, me? Even me? He came for me? He calls me? He would have me? He... He would give up His life. He would lay it down on the cross for me. We must see Jesus as He is and we must also see who we are. We must understand His worth and our unworth. And all those who see Jesus rightly and themselves, who come at Christ's call, will be in the kingdom of God on that great day. And none of them will be excluded. Let me summarize the story that begins there in verse 16 and then we'll get into the particulars of it. Okay? There is a great man. He's hosting a great banquet and he invites the great and all of them end up dishonoring him by turning him down at the last moment. But he doesn't just say, oh great, you know, and throw up his hands and leave it at that. He he sends out a servant and he calls everyone in anyone because he is determined that his house and every seat at his table will be filled. Even those who are cast down and those who are cast out. The maligned in the city, the, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and those who are outside. The, the aliens, the strangers, the foreigners, those who are far away. He wants his house filled. Now let's get into the particulars of this. Let me read verses 16 to the beginning of verse 18 again. If you would look down at your Bible, please. He said, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. 
but they all alike began to make excuses. Turning the host down when he says that the banquet has been at last prepared is actually a scandalous thing. You see, you can look at in verse 16 and see that there is an initial invitation that is put out there. And it is for, you know, all of these, these great people. And this initial invitation is given because the host needs to know the exact number of commitments that he has in order to prepare an adequate banquet. Because if he prepares too little, in this honor-shame culture that we've talked about before quite recently, um, it would be very shameful if he didn't have enough. Remember when Jesus attended that wedding in Cana and they ran out of wine? And it's a big deal. And we think, what is the big deal? Well, in that culture, not having enough was a big deal and would look very bad on those who were hosting it. And so he needs to know the exact number of commitments so he doesn't prepare too little. He also doesn't want to prepare too much because food is their most valuable resource. He's not running down to the supermarket for these things. He is taking valuable livestock in order to prepare this meal. If he has excess, it's not like he can throw it in the freezer to save it for a couple months down the road. He doesn't have that ability. So he needs to know the exact number. That's why you have this initial invitation. And it seems like, you know, we can, we can read into this that everyone who has been invited says they are coming. They all commit to come. So then, once the banquet is prepared, the master sends out his servant again to issue the second call and to say to the people, okay, it's time. The banquet is ready. It's been prepared. It would be a dishonorable thing to turn down that first invitation unless there was some very significant pressing matter. Because if you just didn't feel like going... It would be dishonorable. Again, honor-shame culture. And, and, and that would just look bad. But all of these people have committed to coming. And when the second call goes out, and these people begin to offer excuses, this reflects very badly. And it looks like there is some kind of collusion here. That there is a conspiracy. Because every single person that said they were coming now declines it at the last moment. And again, you just, you did not do that. Turning down the first invitation was a a bad thing in itself. But once this host has killed the fatted calf for you and you renege at the last second, that was very shameful. But it looks like a conspiracy against this host to, to bring him down from his exalted place, his, his place in the social strata. They want him down. And so all of them begin to offer excuses. When they hear, come, everything is now ready. Let's look at their excuses. In the second part of verse 18 down through verse 20, some commentators say that the reasons that they give for not coming are very, very flimsy excuses, but I really, I don't see it like that, and I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. Let's look at these things. The first man turns down the call 
because he has recently acquired a field and he wants to go see it. The second person, and this is obviously just a sampling, the second has purchased five yoke of oxen and he wants to examine them. And so he begs out. And then the third guy, he has just married and he says, I'm not coming either. So why don't those who committed themselves to coming come now with the second call? Why don't they come? Because of property, because of work, and because of family. Property commitments, work commitments, and family commitments are their reasons for not coming. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Well, let's look at the next few verses. I won't take time to reread them. So the servant returns after he has put out the second call and he reports the rejection to his master. Well, he has been greatly dishonored and he is justly angry. So now he is determined that he is going to continue. He's going to have a full house. Every seat at the table is going to be filled. So he says, go out to the city, to the sufferers within our city, the cast down, the, the, the poor, the blind, the crippled. Go to the lame. Go to them all and tell them to come in. So the servant does so and he reports, we have done what you commanded and still there is room. So the master, still determined, sends him out for this third time and he says, go outside the city. Go out to the highways. Go out to the hedges. And here we're not talking about, you know, just outsiders. We're talking, really the, the point is those who don't belong at all. If these sufferers within the city don't belong at the host table, then those outside the city especially don't belong. They might be, you know, part of a leprous com- community that has been cast out. They're aliens, strangers, even, you know, they're foreigners passing by. He says, bring them in. Compel the people to come in. Now, we need to be careful with parables. I know this part here, and it won't be long, is easily to, you know, to dismiss or not pay attention to, but it's important. We need to be careful with our interpretive method because what we tend to do with a parable like like this is we want to take every detail of the story and relate it to a corresponding truth. But what happens when you do this, when you try to squeeze every drop out of the parable, every detail to equate it to something else, you miss the point of the parable. You see, parables and analogies like this are, are designed to relay one, two, or three points. And there, there's always a key point that is one of, uh, the, the teacher wants us to understand. And so, if you tried to say, okay, this detail means this in, in, in truth, we're gonna get in trouble. And I'll give you an example of that. Because if you tried to squeeze every drop out of this, you know what you would do? You would say, okay, it looks like Jesus wants the rich and the great and the, and the upper strata of society at his table. And when the rich and the great refuse him, then he goes to the poor and lowly. He has to settle for the poor and the lowly. There is second choice. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Here is the summary of the meaning. He is telling us a simple story 
to say that those whom the world exalts won't be at the table. And those whom the world refuses, he welcomes inside. That's the point of this parable. Let's cover verse 24, first of all. And then I want to, um, I want to make three points of application this morning for us to consider. Let's look at verse 24. The, the host has said he wants his house filled, so compel the people to come in. And then in verse 24, Jesus concludes, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There is something very important that is easy for us to miss in the English translation here. When he says you, you might have a footnote. If you're using the ESV translation like me, you might have a little footnote beside the word you that indicates that this word is actually plural like he was saying, you all, or y'all, as the case may be. But it's plural, and that's important. Because if the parable is continuing on, right through verse 24, then the host is telling his servant, singular, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. But because he is saying you now, Jesus has finished the parable. The parable is ended with verse 23. And now it's Jesus addressing the assembled Pharisees at the banquet. And he's no, no longer, you know, speaking the voice of the host. It's Jesus himself speaking of his own banquet. He says, for I tell you all, speaking to the Pharisees, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is their banquet. The one that's happening right here and now. This is their thing. And they like it. They think that it's actually a pretty good representation of that banquet to come. But Jesus says not so. And you who think that you have a place, who are presumptuous, who are self-righteous, who are self-exalting, and yet reject me, you have no place at that banquet. That is my banquet at which I am the host. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 25. I'm going to read a few verses, so if you'd like to turn there. But we are looking forward to that great banquet to come in the kingdom of God. What Revelation, again, calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long to be there. It's prefigured in what we have in communion. That great banquet to come. That banquet is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 25. You know, ever since the fall of mankind, the invitation to come to the banquet has been put out. To the Lord God, come. All, come. And the seemingly high and holy of the nation of Israel The religious establishment, we may call them. The teachers, the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They have assumed down through the years that they have a place. Of all people, of course, they have a place at God's table. But not so. Because when Jesus comes and He announces that He has prepared His banquet, 
they reject the host. And they have no place at his table as long as they reject him. As long as they refuse to repent of their sin and realize their need for a Savior, they will not be there. Whoever refuses the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever fails to repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ, will not be there. In Isaiah, seven centuries before Jesus spoke the words we've read, this is what the Lord said. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And I think I neglected to mention which verses I would be reading. That was verses 6 to 9. When Jesus speaks and he says in Luke 14, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He is stepping outside of the story and he is speaking in terms of Isaiah 25. And he says that promise of the great banquet to come at which time death will be no more and pain will be gone. That's my banquet. I am the host. And unless you come to me, you will not be there. I think that there are, well, there's a lot that we could say. But I want us to consider three things this morning as far as application. First of all, Jesus calls on you and me to rethink and to reorient where we are invested in this life. Not just to rethink it, to consider it, but to take action and to reorient where we are invested. Think about this. How many will miss the kingdom of God because they are in love with the kingdom of this world? How many will miss the banquet on that day because they love the world? And so we need to ask ourselves as we examine our hearts, what is my face glued to? And what does that say about the attachments of my heart? For what things is my love steadfast? For what things is my love just seasonal? If we have a steadfast love for the world and only a seasonal love for the Lord and His people, His glory, His truth, His gospel, we have the wrong investments. and We have the wrong loves in our heart. You know, these people that were offering excuses to the host, it's not like these men are scraping the bottom of the immoral barrel, are they? Again, what are their excuses? Property, work, and family. How many people 
will miss the great gift of the kingdom because they loved the good gifts of God and not God Himself. How many will be banished from the presence of God forever because they loved what He gave, property, work, and family, and did not count all as loss to gain Christ. Who worshipped the creation and not the Creator. And what is especially tragic on that judgment day is how many souls will be banished from the presence of God who expected to be welcomed inside. There will be many on that day who know when they stand before God that they are done for. They did not acknowledge Him. They did not live well or nobly or however we want to put it. And they will not be surprised to be sentenced away from the presence of God. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many great things in Your name? Jesus says, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that's the great tragedy. That's the most frightening. Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23, I can't think of any more troubling verses in all of Scripture than that. Because I believe very strongly, and we've talked about it a lot before, and I'm certain that most, if not all of you, would agree with me, that our specific culture and society where we live here in North Louisiana is filled with those kinds of people who are presuming on their place in the kingdom of God because they went to church, they walked an aisle, they, they said a prayer, they were baptized, um, they tried to live noble moral lives, but they never came to an end of themselves and realized how desperately they needed a Savior. They never were, as Jesus said, poor in spirit. They, they never realized that in themselves they were bankrupt of all righteousness that would commend them to God. There is nothing that we could ever in ourselves offer to God that would earn salvation, that would give us a place in His kingdom. We must all come to the end of our rope and say, you alone are my salvation. I have no hope apart from you. Second of all, the gospel is good news. The first thing we need to think about is how we need to reorient our lives, our treasures, and say that Christ is all. Second, Jesus is speaking the good news. There is not only conviction here for us, there is comfort as well. There is the mercy of God that's so present here. If you, if you pay any attention to the, the goings on of the world, you're likely to hear the statistic that says that 1% of the world's population owns half of the world's wealth. And we know about the upper strata, as I've been calling them in this message, you know, the, the 1%, the rich, or we might think of it as the, the 10%, everyone who's above just the middle class. We know that they have the most voice in this world. 
they have the most power in this world and they garner the most respect in this world. And on the other hand, you have these people who were, to use the analogy of Jesus, they're, they're within the city, poor, lame, crippled, blind. They're the cast downs. Let's call them those who have been cast down. And then you have those who are far away. We'll call them the cast outs. You have the cast down and the cast out. And what do they have? They don't have voice in this world. They don't have power in this world. They don't have respect in this world. They are disrespected in this world. And very likely the world blames them for the position that they are in and leaves it at that and say, hey, you made your bed, sleep in it. That kind of thing. They receive blame. One receives respect and the other receives blame. But spiritually speaking, everything has changed. It's, it, to, we're speaking in economic terms, material, physical terms, but spiritually speaking, it's very different. The rich tend, tend, this is not 100% exclusive, but they tend to believe that they have it all together. That they, with all that they have, they don't have room for a savior. They don't have need for a savior. And we know that the message of Jesus is that the poor, those who have come to an end of themselves and being in that physical position of poverty, economic position, tends to also bring to, to light the spiritual position. And they, the poor and the physically disabled are much more likely to thrust themselves upon the mercy of God. And Jesus Christ, His message is that the kingdom is for any of these. The gospel is for all. It's for the rich and the poor. It's for the advantaged and the disadvantaged. The favored and the disfavored in this world. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus wants anyone in. No matter how far away from Him they are, and no matter what they have done to put themselves there. That's the good news of the gospel. Listen, where, what category are we in? Okay, we might put ourselves in the economic middle class, likely, perhaps. But spiritually, who are we? We're the cast downs, and we're the cast outs. And what we need to realize that we need to realize that all of our spiritual wounds are self-inflicted. And all our distance away from God is our own doing. But His heart is not turned away from us. He is looking to us. And He is calling to us with the good news. And He is saying, come to Me. And I know that in this good news of the Gospel, you rejoice because it's in this that you and I live. We live again. But I I want you, before we get to our third thing, think about how this second consideration affects the first. That is, how does knowing the love of Jesus for the flung down and the far away compel us to reorient our loves and our investments in this world. Doesn't the love of Jesus for us whose wounds are self-inflicted and whose distance is our own doing, His love compels us to come? Doesn't it compel you to come? I mean, how can you, how can any resist the love of the Lord? 
We were talking about this in Sunday school earlier. That love changes our lives. We fly to Jesus. And we want no other Savior. Because no one has loved us like this. Third, how does this good news make you look upon others? First of all, Jesus is calling us to rethink and to reorient where we are invested in this life. Second, we're just rejoicing in the good news that Jesus has come for us and He wants us in. And we're saying, me? Even me? And it's true. He wants even me. Even you. But third, how does this good news make you look upon others? Who do you look up to to exalt and to serve? And who in this life may you look down on? Who might you be avoiding? Can you serve those who don't have it all together in this life? Can you serve the people who are obviously sinners? I mean, we know we're all sinners. But some are obviously, outward, extremely obviously sinners. Right? Can you serve those who are obviously sinners? Can you serve the people who can't keep up appearances? You see, when we talk about the rich, we're not just talking about the 1% or the 10%, whatever. Let's be honest with where we are. We're talking about the solid middle class who not only have their needs met, but can also have one of the, a lot of their wants satisfied. And we're able to keep up appearances. Maintain this level of respectability. But what about the have-nots? What about the least, the lowly, those who are obviously cast down, whom the world despises, who can't, they don't have the money to keep up appearances? Can you serve them too? Do our hands extend? Do our hearts go out? Is our door open? Church door open? Home door open? Are our lives open? Do we love? Do we love? Can we befriend? I'll tell you what what truth consistently helps me in this regard. It's this. I know if my heart, my spiritual heart, was turned inside out so that who I am spiritually was obvious, evident to whoever, I know that the very worst of appearances would look better than me. If my heart was turned inside out and made obvious, the worst appearances would look better. It's so sad that when we see, you know, run down and broken and obviously sinful, we just despise and we blame. We look down on with contempt and we forget who we are. We forget who we are. But if our hearts were turned inside out, this is the truth. The lowliest would look higher 
The ugliest would be prettier. The darkest would be lighter. The filthiest that's out there would look purer. The weakest would look stronger. The most run down and broken would look more put together. All if my heart was turned inside out. Inside out. But Jesus set His heart on me. He set His heart on this heart. He did not turn away, but He turned to. And He is for me. He is so for me that He would lay down His life and make this heart of mine His own to possess it and to make it His home where He abides. What grace is that? That the Most High God would be so for this heart of mine. Me? Yes, the Gospel says. Even you! So who are we to despise? Who are we to blame? Who are we to cast out and cast aside? Have we forgotten the mercy of God? If we will know who we are and who we would be apart from grace, we would invite all in. We would invite all in. Jesus' house is going to be filled. Church family, you look around this house, so to speak. We have a lot of people gone today. There won't be an empty spot in the Father's house. Every spot is going to be filled. All sorts of people. Sinners, all of them who come at the call of Jesus. Do you think that you're not worthy? Of course you're not worthy. But you're the one that He loves. You're the one that He calls to. You're the one He died for. Believe. Turn away from sin. Turn away from hoping in you. Trust all in Jesus. And your place will be guaranteed in the Father's house at Jesus' table. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is, this is our hope. This is the goodness of this. There is no place for us only if we don't come. All we must do is come to Jesus at His call. Turn away from ourselves. Trust in Jesus to be saved. What other Lord would we want besides Your Son? What other promise out there could give us hope? There is none like Jesus. Father, this is the confession of Your people today. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Whom do we have in heaven but You? And what on earth do we desire besides You? O Lord, You are everything to us because You gave everything to us in Your Son. We praise You for the gift of Your love. I pray, Father, that we would not just 
fill up with your love and be happy about it, but I pray that we would fill with your love to overflowing and we would pour it out to all that we see. I pray that we would be kind to all and gracious to all and not jump to conclusions about people and just not be naturally suspicious about them and their motives and and all of that, Father. I pray that we would be channels wide open clear of your grace and your mercy. And would you be pleased, Father, to use us to put in the hearts of those who are yet lost the good news of Jesus, the saving truth of Jesus. And would you please add to our church sinners like us who long for Jesus? We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.